Roslyn, what is going on? I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and being a guest of mine in season two of Keyhole Conversations. I started this podcast to uh, share my conversations with people that I find very interesting. And luckily, you're one of those people I find very interesting or unlucky because now you're sitting here talking to me. <laughs> well, let's see if you still feel lucky partway through. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, you're you're totally good. Um, the reason I, and I kind of talked to you about before we started this, was um, I find it so interesting that you're only in your 50s and you've already been through one whole career and then a bunch of other like jobs that you did. And now you're looking at starting a whole nother venture in your life. And you have so much life still ahead of you. And to me, that's, that's like astonishing because when you hear people that, especially in your kind of age bracket, the, mo- the majority of them that I see are, they do one job their whole life and they go 40 years, retire, and then they're done out of the workforce. But you're like, I mean, you retired as a police officer at what age? At 48, I believe. 48. Yeah, that's that's insane to me. Like to to retire at 48, n- no one, I mean, not a lot of people get that opportunity. That's true. And was that due to the fact that you worked in public safety and back then it was a 20-year Didn't they have like a 20-year retirement plan? Yes, it was a 20-year retirement. I retired at 24. Um, Yes, it's changed now. I believe it's 25. 25. So you did four years after what you could have retired. Yes. Is there a reason you did that? Was it, do you get more money the more years of service you put in? Yes, um, there is that. And mostly I stayed on after because approaching 20 years, I couldn't wait to retire. I was really done. I'd had a gutful. And, but then after my 20 years, it just felt different knowing that I didn't have to keep going to work, that any day I could say, I'm done. Um, and it just felt different. I gave you a so little, I, I gave you a kind <laughs> of a different perspective. Yes. That, that's interesting. Um, we, uh, I recently interviewed a Salt Lake City firefighter that he did his 20 and he was done. And he kind of had the same uh, response that you did. Like he said, once he got to 20 and he, but he didn't go anything after that. He had an event. He was one of the first responding uh, captains with his engine crew to Trolley Square. And he said after that event, he was like, oh, oh, shit, I'm out of here. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm doing my 20 and then I'm going and experiencing other stuff. Um, I'm just curious, how long after trolley did he hit his 20? Was it? I think he said he had another three years to go. Okay. But he said that was the event that really cemented in his mind that he was not going to do years after 20. He said after that event and everything of that nature and everything that had culminated between his rookie years and the uh, later years, he was like, you know, enjoyed it but he was kind of done with the experience and wanted to experience something more with life and a, you know, a different situation. He went on to work for Delta airlines and he works at shields and he works here now driving school bus and he, he's loving it. And he did like professional umpire school and he's, he himself (laughs) is only in his early fifties, I believe like 53, 54, right around there. So he's still fairly young. And like I said, has all this life ahead of him. And I think that's awesome that people can, 
get into careers super early, but then also realize when they want to get out of them and they don't spend a 40 year career in it. What made you want to go into law enforcement in the first place? Well, that's an interesting story. Um, so as a kid, I think in the third grade, you, you know, write something about what you want to be when you grow up. Mm -hmm. My page was full, like regular lined paper, full top to bottom. I wanted to be everything in law enforcement was one of them, but just, you know, along with being a doctor and a lawyer and an astronaut, you name it, I wanted to be it all. And uh, so fast forward, I was married and my husband had always wanted to be in law enforcement. And he was going to apply for Salt Lake City Police. And he kept saying, well, why don't you do it? You're, you know, you need a better job. And I did. What were you doing at the the time before that? (laughs) I was working as a receptionist at a health clinic um, at, for the University of Utah. Oh, okay. So, yes, I definitely needed a better job. Gotcha. And he just kept insisting, you know, why don't you do this? And I, and I didn't say no, but I was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. But I kept not picking up my packet. So on the last day... Packet, meaning, oh, like the application? The application packet, Okay, yeah. gotcha. So it was the last day, and he called me. And said, hey, it's the last day I'm going to go pick that up for you. And I said, okay. Well, he showed up at my work saying, they won't give it to me. You have to pick it up yourself. So he picked me up and took me. So I got it. I applied. We both tested. I did well. He did not. (laughs) And I went through, because there's lots of steps. I went through all the steps. And uh, that's how I became a cop is because my husband at the time wanted to be more than anything and he did eventually oh did he finally get on yeah yeah no not with salt lake was there a little bit of resentment there from him when you made the cut and he didn't he said no but i think so i mean i i think honestly if it was me i would probably be a little (laughs) resentful as well like god damn it she i I was inviting her to work with me and she beat me out Yeah. What what were you say there was a lot of steps to becoming a police officer? What are those steps? Well, I hope I remember at the time and it may have changed somewhat. Mm -hmm. So there is a an initial weed out test where part of the packet is a book to study and you take a test based on that on that book. Uh And so that's the initial weed out. And so if you pass that, then you can move on to the next step. Um and I certainly don't remember what order they came in, but there is a psychological evaluation. There's a like a medical evaluation. There's a physical fitness evaluation. There's a background um, check evaluation. I might be missing some evaluation. In the background, the, the, highlights. Uh, <laughs> the polygraph and all that as well, hook you up to the machine, make yes. sure you're not lying. Yes. How did that go? I wasn't lying. Worked perfectly. Perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) I always think I would straight up fail one of those because I like I think my mind would go back to when did I steal that pencil from the third grade? I yeah, I mean, I worried about it, too, and not even necessarily thinking of something in particular that I had done, Mm -hmm. but just just knowing that like a machine is in charge and it's like what if it picks up just my anxiety about the process in general or just you know oh yeah anyway 
anyway. Wait, yeah, you got through fine. it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could ever get through one of those because I get anxiety about a DOT medical exam, which is like the <laughs> simplest thing ever. And I'm like, my blood pressure is going to be one point over and they're not going to give me my card for the next two years. <laughs> so you, what year was this that you uh, started your venture into law enforcement? 1990. 1990. Mm -hmm. So that was the year I was born. You started going through the academy. <laughs> yes. And um, did Salt Lake City have their own academy at that time or was? No. No. It was everyone went through the state. State academy at that yeah. time. It wasn't, a, uh -huh. it wasn't an in-house academy. Correct. So you're getting into this academy. You're early 20s at this time? Um, 24, I believe. 24, and your husband, he's not in it no. at the time. So um, how long did it take you to get through the academy? <coughs> was that a little while or it's probably like It was just, it wasn't very long. Mm -hmm. um, but my process, so through post, I want to say six months. Six but months. But I could be wrong. Maybe it was less. It seemed not very long. Um, and then after that, you'd go through that process. Then there was an in-house training where there was more like book work, but also, um, you know, writing with people and getting experience. And in the middle of that was Christmas. And back then they would use the recruit classes to do Christmas traffic control around the malls downtown because traffic was so horrific. Oh, yeah. So in the middle of my process, I think we stopped for like six weeks to do traffic control. So all in all, by the time I went through post and the Salt Lake City training, um, it was nearly a year nearly before a year. I was out on my own. And you had to, so you spent time like with a field training officer and all yes. that as well. Mm-hmm. When did it hit you that you were like, oh, my God, I'm a police officer. <laughs> like, I have to enforce laws. I have this authority now. Was it like your first day in training or was it right after when you got out? It probably, I mean, the biggest impact was after I was on my own because well, as long as with a training officer, even if I was responsible for the call, I knew that there was someone else right here whose job was to, you know, make sure I didn't mess it up. Yeah. And so it wasn't really until after I was out on my own, it's like, oh, if I do this wrong, there could be really significant consequences for me, for victims, for suspects, for, you know, and it was, um, I didn't dwell on it. I'm not a dweller mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I don't dwell on stuff because I think if I go down that rabbit hole, I'm not going to be able to do this job. You know? uh, yeah. No kidding. So, um, your first day alone, do you remember that day? Not really the work. I remember going into work Gotcha. and being excited about it and a little bit anxious, even though I was very, um, I had good field training officers and was very comfortable with the mechanics of the job. But when, you know, there's no possible way you can train for every eventuality. I mean, 
if you work for 30 years in your last year, you're going to encounter stuff you've never encountered before. Yeah, no kidding. I, I can't even imagine because you're going from, you're dealing with the biggest dynamic in the world and that's the human mind and yes. all, and you, you're not dealing with it on a good day. Yeah. <laughs> you're mainly dealing with it mm-hmm. on a very bad day. And then you're working in a department that is vast and wide. Like I imagine as a police officer, everyone polices a little differently and you have different styles and forms. And I mean, like a police officer out in Tooele County is going to be way different than being a police officer in Salt Lake City. Because in Salt Lake City, not only do you have the city itself and the suburb areas and all that, but you have a ton of transient population down there Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So at that time was Salt Lake city divided into like sectors and you were assigned to a different sector or did you just patrol the whole city itself? Um, I believe at that time there was, um, divided East and West and at busy times of the day, you were on separate channels, radio channels, but within East and West, you had a smaller geographic area that was yours to patrol. And it, just determined um, how they would assign calls. If it was in your area, if you were available, you got assigned the initial and someone, you know, uh, adjoining area ideally would be assigned your back. So you were responsible for the call, but your back was there to do whatever it was you needed them to do. Gotcha. You know, and then it was so, and then if you weren't actively engaged in a call, and you were supposed to patrol your that geographic area. So was there areas that you were like, man, I do not want to work that beat? Like, I don't want to be on 1st South and 5th West, or was it you were excited um, to go wherever? I was fine with anywhere. And interestingly, more than... A lot of people like working those downtown areas because there's always something to do in... And probably nowadays, no matter where you work, you're probably call to call to call all mm-hmm. day long. But then if I wanted to take a break, I would go to the east side because it was typically a uh, lower call volume. But I, uh, on the east side, you ran into people regularly who were paying your salary and I'm going to, you know, it was it was oftentimes not so nice working on the east side because a lot of people assumed that they were smarter than you, better than you in every way, and had no problem letting you know that. Yeah, I can only imagine. If you're not familiar (laughs) with Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City is, when she says east and west, west side Salt Lake is more of... I don't want to say like totally impoverished, but it's no. like Rose Park, yeah. um, Poplar Grove area. And very east, working class. Yeah. East side is very university driven. You got the University of Utah up there. Then you have a ton of nice homes up in the avenue areas and things of that nature. So I can, I can definitely see because I also, not having worked law enforcement, but in uh, school bus driving, I have been in almost every demographic. Like when I worked in Murray... I drove kids that were inner city and refugee type kids. Like a lot of them were from Africa. And the way they uh, 
you interacted with them was very different from how I interact with some people up in the high hills of Harriman where there's a lot of money. People just interact differently and yes. and they create their different problems and everyone so people ask me sometimes like, oh, they must be so well mannered up there. I'm like, kids have manners no matter what and kids have behaviors that aren't according to their manners no matter <laughs> what, whether they're rich or poor. And the way that they respond to you, you can very much attribute that to the demographic region because I've been told that many a time. In the poorer areas I've driven, it's, you know, you get your problems and in the richer areas, you get your problems. In some of those richer areas, I've been told, well, you're just a bus driver. My dad's a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, being in law enforcement in the 90s, um, and I think it's changed now, and maybe in the 90s it was already changed, but were you, you were obviously in the minority being a female, correct? Yes. Um, how many females were on the force for Salt Lake City at that time? Was there a handful or was it pretty small amount? Um, for the total numbers, it was a very small amount, but there were... I don't know how big is your handful. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly. There were probably maybe as many as 10. But, you know, uh, there, I think at that time, fully staffed was considered 200. 200 officers? Yeah. And you, about 10 of you were females. Yeah. So I would say a very small, small, small yes. number. Did you feel kind of out of place at first being a female and a male driven and it's kind of society like I said it's changing but it's back back then and in the 80s and stuff you know the tv shows the movies the alpha driven male cop to rescue the day and <laughs> to give yeah. people a, a gander of what you are you're what five seven hundred and thirty hundred and forty pound female like you're not this big macho dude. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Um, I, there was certainly some of that, but I was, I didn't, I don't think you could go into law enforcement as a woman and be that sort of shrinking violet where you're going to be intimidated simply being in a room full of men. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, there as my career went on, um, and I got to know uh, mostly men, and it was interesting to find out that everyone had their list of people who you knew if you went on a call with them, you were really alone. And there were men and women <laughs> In that category. I gotcha. And, um, and I was never one of those women, but uh, there was certainly, I could feel the, the pressure, and it's not like I felt pressure every day, but I knew that if I didn't perform up to snuff, that there would be talk and it would be really easy for me to get on that list of you're alone if you're with her as opposed to 
a man. I mean, men had to demonstrate time and again that you were alone if you went with them. Whereas if a woman one time did something, you were on the list. Gotcha. There's no <laughs> redeeming yourself. It's like, oh, it's just Rosalind, dude. We don't want... Yep. Oh, she's coming as my backup. Oh, no. Yep. Um, how long were you... Because officers mainly, when they first start their careers, are basically patrol officers, right? Mm-hmm. How long were you in patrol before you moved on to your next venture within law enforcement? Four years. Um, but that first... I think that first year included my like my time in training. Your time so, in training. Yeah. So a so year of training and everything and three years in patrol. What did you do after uh, patrol? What was your next venture in law enforcement? After that, I went to motors. Motors. Mm-hmm. That's that's for someone who doesn't know what motors is, because a lot of people are like, what, you worked on motors <laughs> <laughs> in the machine shop? Explain yeah. what motors is. It's the motorcycle squad. Gotcha. So they're the ones that do traffic control and ride in parades and escort um, dignitaries and uh, do funeral, you know, funeral escorts and things like that. So that's going to be pretty weird because already motorcycles, I think, I'm not being sexist or anything, but it's like a quote unquote male dominated hobby. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I go in a Harley store, I don't go into them very often anyways, but I've been into motorcycle shops. So I see men everywhere. I don't see a lot of women. <laughs> yeah. So you're not only you're a female in law enforcement in the 90s, but now you're going into the motor squad. How was that? That was interesting. So the year that I uh, that I tried out for it, they had the most people in I think they'd ever had. They had to run two schools. So, well, no, they had to run two um, qualifying days. So they, uh, you had to, for one day, go, and they, we had trainer motorcycles. And you would, they would teach you, you know, ride the patterns, do whatever. And they had to have two days of that to weed people out because I think in the class... There was a maximum of, I don't know, 12, maybe. I don't remember exactly. So there was a very big class, and I had, you know, I'd interestingly, I didn't directly catch a lot of grief from people, but people would talk, and so people that I knew would tell me that other people were making these snarky comments about it. So, and I... I just thought, well, yeah, it's going to happen. And because it was very, it was very much a, it was right up there with SWAT, you know, being the manly man thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went through the school and I, I passed that initial thing. Had you driven a motorcycle before? I had. And so it wasn't brand new. Okay. But, you know, after going through motor school, I realized I'd really had no business riding a motorcycle beforehand because, I mean, when I was a kid, I had a friend who had dirt bikes and we would, you know, go ride um, up in the hills by our house. Um, And then my husband had had a big dresser Honda, I forget. Anyway, a big motorcycle. 
And that's what I had ridden most recently and was most comparable to police motorcycles. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was, yeah, after I going through training, I was like, hmm. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I had no business doing that. But anyway, uh, I went through the, the class and when they, they cut out, a lot of people who rode extensively had their own motorcycles and rode a lot. So after the fact... I asked the people in training, just curious, <laughs> how did that work? I mean, because I clearly wasn't a better writer than them. And they said, well, a couple of things. If people have been writing for a long time, they generally have a lot of bad habits that are really hard to break because it's a habit. If you're new or newish, you start from the start and learn good skills and habits right from the start. So there's that. And they said, the other thing is, um, every time you fell, and I fell a lot because you're, you know, doing these patterns that you are unfamiliar and you're just learning these skills. And they said, every time you fell, you just picked your bike back up and kept going. And, and I said, as opposed to, he says, well, and they named a few people and said, you heard them like cussing and screaming from across the, you know, across the parking lot. They were just having a meltdown. And riding a motorcycle is a very mental activity. You have to be focused, and especially in training, there's six days of like 12, 12 hour days, sometimes longer. Wow. And a lot of it is boring, repetitive, and it's not boring because you've got the skill and don't need any more practice. It's that you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And if you can't keep focused on it, then you won't be able to improve and master that skill. And so that was kind of one of my biggest realizations is it's a very, the training itself is very mentally taxing. And I was actually very surprised. One of the people in my training class had the year before gone through SWAT school. And I had just, I mean, I'd heard stories about SWAT school oh, yeah. and had just assumed it was a lot harder. And he said that motor school was way harder and that was maybe he was just more comfortable and knew more what to expect with SWAT school. I don't know. But he said, in his opinion, motor school was much harder and a lot of it had to do with being able to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and maintaining focus. Wow. So, so mo motor school, was there any other females in motor school with you? No. And were you the, f I believe you were the first female officer in Salt Lake City or one of the first? One of the first. So it's very interesting. Um, the people on the motor squad knew that, and I don't remember how long before I went through motor school. I want to say it was at least 10 years, but it, it might have been longer. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a woman, Lorraine Kilpack, had been the first woman on the motor squad. And it's my understanding that she wasn't on for very long and that the officers were pretty ruthless juror making, you know, Constantly, she was the butt of jokes. Gotcha. And at least 
their version of it was, and she was really easy to make the butt of jokes because, you know, that kid that gives you a really great reaction, they're the fun one to tease. Well, mm-hmm. apparently she gave them a really great reaction. Gotcha. So so cops aren't beyond their teasing, right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. So um, she was. But when I went through motor school, I don't know how the media found out about it, but there was this whole big write-up about it. And I don't remember if in the newspaper they said I was the first one, but throughout my... I was on motors for four years uh, that time, and throughout the whole time, I would encounter people, and, and they'd say, hey... I know you, you're the first female off, you know, motor officer. And I got tired of correcting people because every time this was even people within the police department, really like people that it's easy for them to check, you know, talk to other motors and find out. And I kept correcting and kept correcting. And I just thought this is a waste of my breath. So I started saying, yep. (laughs) <laughs> just yep. just so you don't have to say actually 10 years before yeah. and tell this whole story over and over again. <laughs> I don't blame you one bit. You spent four years in motors. Is that what you said? Uh-huh. Yes. What does motors consist of as a law enforcement officer? You're probably responding to vastly different calls or the same calls? Um, well, different than just patrol in that they might be utilized differently in different agencies, But, I mean, being on a motorcycle, it makes it much easier to do traffic enforcement because you can sit on the side of a a road easier and, you know, run laser to get people's speed. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to accelerate quickly and catch someone, you know, if you're in a car and it just doesn't, it's not as efficient, especially in a downtown setting where the traffic's heavy. Anyway, so um, traffic is what what they do. And so writing tickets, investigating accidents, which I always got a big kick out of because, yes, traffic accidents are part of uh, enforcing traffic. Mm-hmm. But to any given traffic accident, if there wasn't a motor available, they would send two patrol cars. And if there was a motor available, they'd send one motor. And I'm sure the rationale was that um, motors are more proficient at it because that's what they do, you know, far more than people in patrol. Yeah. So that's true. But also part of the job is to protect the accident scene. And so if you've got a car, it's easy to block a whole lane and you can block two lanes sometimes even three with a car. And so we always, we laughed all the time that, you know, send one motor to block off however many lanes of traffic (laughs) you need with a motorcycle and, you know, and we'd have flares and cones and, you know, not big cones. Did you ever get uh, like sideswiped or anything at a traffic accident? That would be scary to me, like... Because you got, uh, what do you call them, rubber deckers like no other that are just so focused on what happened. Yeah. And you see all the time, like, officers getting hit. I mean, maybe it's primarily, like, the highway patrol guys, but they're getting hit writing tickets or at accidents themselves. Did you ever have any real close calls? Um, yeah, close calls. And it's, 
it's rubberneckers, yes, but especially in a downtown area where people are going slower, it's, I think people are just more likely to realize they're, you know, going off the side of the road. And since they're going at slower speed, they can correct it. Gotcha. But, but yeah, there's. But you, you yourself were never hit by a vehicle or I was, anything. Well, not, uh, no, I was never hit by a vehicle. Um, I ran into one. Someone turned left in front of me. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah. On your I, motorcycle? Uh-huh. Oh, God. How was, yeah. was that a pretty gnarly accident? It was. Wow. So, um, I was doing, uh, traffic control on, I can't believe I'm not sure, 9th or 11th East. Anyway, and, um, I was, I had pulled out to go chase a speeder and so when you are accelerating to chase a speeder on a motorcycle, you can do that very quickly. And you don't turn on your red lights until you are up close enough to match their speed. Because if you're accelerating hard and they look up and see red and blue lights, and if they hit the brakes, then you've got a real bad situation where you're, you know, there's a period of, reaction time where they're braking and you're accelerating. I didn't even think about that. So I hadn't hit my reds, my red and blues yet because I was just, I had just gotten to where I was matching their speed and there was a car waiting to turn left. And I would always catch people's eye to make sure that they saw me. And there was a glare on the windshield. And so I couldn't see the face of the person driving. So I let off the accelerator. I didn't brake, but I just, I made more space because I was going really fast for that roadway. And that makes a difference with people expect, you know, what to expect a vehicle to be going. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I created more space so that he would have time to turn if that's what he was going to do. So I waited, I mean, and waited, and he didn't turn. So I was just about to go back to my throttle and when he turned left in front of me. And I hadn't gone back to my throttle, but even at that, I was still going about 50 miles an hour. So he turned left in front of me. And so in training, we do these skills. They're called break and escapes where you, um, at at a certain speed, you have to break within a certain distance and be in control enough to go through a pattern at the end of that. So there's a lot of practicing in um, efficient braking. Um, so I'm doing this, and I'm feeling all the inputs um, That's I wasn't feeling the inputs from my motorcycle that I was used to feeling. And, you know, how things slow down when they're, <laughs> when they're traumatic. Mm-hmm. As I'm headed towards this car, I had the thought in my head, I'm like, am I just running into this car? Because I wasn't getting the feed, I wasn't feeling the feedback I was expecting from my motorcycle. Yeah. So I hit the car and just at the right rear uh, wheel well, and it, my wheel went in there and it turned my uh, handlebars like back into, into, into you. Me. And so and I didn't feel that at the time, certainly, but I hit the car and I went tumbling over the car 
And as I was in the air, I saw my left hand like doing circles independent of my arm. Oh. And I thought, that's not right. <laughs> and so. I don't mean to laugh. I, but, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy the amount of detail. And I remember everything about it except for the hitting the ground. And I, I've thought many times it would have been great to have this on video because I hit the ground and I rolled and I ended up in the travel lane and I sat up and I grabbed my wrist because, you know, things hurt more if you see them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I grabbed my wrist and I turned around to look behind me to see if I was going to get plowed by a car coming behind me. And luckily they had, they were slowing down and stopping. So I'd been uh, working this area with another officer and just coincidentally, I mean, it was in a spot where very often we caught people and they had pulled over to the side to issue a ticket. Mm-hmm. So he'd been writing someone a ticket when this happened. And so he came running up to me and I'm just sitting there and he helped me since, since I didn't have to get out of the way of a car, <laughs> he just helped me stand up and I went over and sat on the curb. Mm-hmm. And he was like, are you okay? I says, well... I broke my arm, but other than that, I seemed to be fine. He said, you hit that car, and I saw you flying through the air, and I wondered what your poor kids were going to do without a mom. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how I hit the ground, but my boots weren't scuffed. My helmet wasn't scratched. I didn't tear my uniform in any fashion. And... Even in the days after, I didn't have any neck or back problems. You just know how to fall the right way. Apparently, I do. <laughs> I had no idea, but apparently, I did it well. That's got to be the. I'm thinking about this person that pulled in front of you. I'm like, of all the people that that you don't want to <laughs> hit, it's a police officer. <laughs> well, did they get uh, cited and all that, and carted off to jail, or were they just? He got cited, and he got referred to get his uh, uh, driver's license reevaluated. He was an elderly gentleman, and he hadn't realized he'd been in a wreck. It was at a, he was pulling into a grocery store, and he just continued to pull in, and he went and parked in a stall. Like, um, uh, probably the one who was there with me, I think he went over to them. It was like, hey, bro, you just hit a cop. Yeah, well, <laughs> pulled in front of me. I hit him. Oh, but well, yes, yeah. But yeah, so I think he just got referred and probably didn't drive anymore after that. That's that's a crazy, crazy... Oh. Uh, to hit a car that fast on a motorcycle, you're lucky to be alive. So the thing is, because I, because I wondered if I just hit the car, um, you know, because they... Uh, with a cop, even though there weren't more significant injuries, they still did a very extensive investigation. Mm-hmm. So they did a skid analysis, and they said that um, given from where I started breaking from where the skid started to where the skid ended, and um, my estimation of speed that was kind of verified by the amount of damage, they said that I had to have been breaking exceedingly well. Like there's there's a point called impending skid. When you're at impending skid, you're breaking the most efficiently because if you break a little bit more, 
you will lose traction because you're asking it to stop faster than it's capable, but in that impending skid. And that's one of the inputs that I wasn't registering, um, which is you can, it's like you can hear kind of a skip on the ground. Mm -hmm. And they, he said, he figured I probably hit the car going about 20. Oh, wow. So, so you were able to take it down to that. Yeah. So not only do you know how to fly through the air <laughs> in style and yeah. roll in style without injuring yourself, you know how to crash in style as well. How to crash. <laughs> yep, I got it. <laughs> so after motors, you spent four years on motors. Where did you go from there? Back to patrol or did you venture into something else? Um, after that, I went to detectives. Detectives. I went to detectives and I started in... Where did I start? That's funny. Probably burglary, but I don't know that. That's funny. I don't know. But I, I wasn't there very long before I went to financial crimes. And then I spent like 10 or 11 years in, in financial, financial crimes. crimes? Mm -hmm. Wow. So to go from something like breaking and entering and you're investigating these burglaries and stuff to financial crimes. What explain to me real quick, what do you mean by financial crimes? Like organizations or especially then it was mostly check fraud. Gotcha. I mean it mostly stolen checks and, you know, passing checks, credit cards, um, embezzlements at businesses. And would this have been in the early 2000s when you were doing the financial? Um, starting in the late 90s because it was basically 90 to 94 in patrol, um, 94 to 98 in motors. motors. And then I went to detectives, but that doesn't sound right, burglary. I don't know. But um, so probably in 99, I was in financial crimes and was there. So that's right. It's like the internet's kind of barely coming onto the scene. Mm -hmm. Checks are still a huge form of yep. uh, currency transfer out there. Yep. Yeah. So you probably had a ton of that stolen check stuff mm -hmm. and stolen credit cards and things of that nature. Yeah. Yep. That was the lion's share of it. Was that uh, doing a case like that? Did that take a lot to track down who stole the check, find them, take them, arrest them, all that? Um, it or, could. I mean, some. I mean, sometimes really a lot, sometimes not quite so much. It, it would just depend. And I was constantly amazed at how well tellers were able to, um, they would recognize people from a lineup. Like really? you, you'd get your suspect and you'd put them in a, a six pack, which mm -hmm. is um, a, six pictures of people who look similar. Mm -hmm. And um, very often the person that I thought the person was, they would pick out their face. And I was just, I was amazed because of all the people they see. They, they see on a daily basis. And it would, it made a big difference whether they realized at the time. I mean, if they, if they realized at the time something was fishy about it, they almost always could pick them out. But even if they didn't realize something was fishy and it was, you know, a week later, I'm saying, hey, this person came in, they cashed this check, you're the person, you know, you're, you're the teller they went to. And if I could remind me of, remind them of a particular day, very often they could do it. I was 
Wow. I was shocked. That That is yeah. shocking. I wouldn't be able to do that. I have a hard time remembering kids' <laughs> names. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought the same. And, you know, a lot of times there was video, but it, video is usually not clear enough to be able to definitively say, yes, it's this person. But it is... It's good enough that if you know who the person is to say, yeah, that's them. Gotcha. You know. Yeah. Sup- like a supplemental <clears throat> evidence on top of yeah. what you got already. Yeah. Even nowadays, like a lot of people got these dash cams that they're so proud of. I have one as well. And then like you pull the video off of it and you look at it and you can't even make out the license plate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like what the hell? <laughs> um, so you spent quite a while in financial crimes and you said you did eight years. About 10, I believe. About 10 in financial crimes? Yeah. And then then is that when you, that would have put you at, what, 18 years of service or something around there? Um, it would. So maybe it was more like eight. Did I talk to you about this before, Marcus? I no. have. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, because you've, after, you've alluded to some of your back uh, law enforcement with me, but not, I didn't never knew you were in financial crimes. Yeah. Because after financial crimes, I went to homicide. And interestingly, you know, you talk to the firefighter, um, Charlie Square was the first case that was assigned to me. Are you kidding me? Because when you go into homicide, and it's probably with any, you, um, the whole squad works on any given homicide initially. Uh, but that's assigned to one person. So before I got my own, you know, um, I helped other people on theirs, and Charlie Square was the first one I was assigned to. Wow. Now, that that guy passed away, right, the victim, mm-hmm. or was he? The shooter? Yeah. Yeah. They're not the victim, the shooter. He passed mm-hmm. away at the, so, but that was your, the first case assigned to you. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's and, a part of Salt Lake City history. It is, it is, and interestingly after after that case um, the homicide unit changed how they operated in some significant ways for the investigators um, and one was if a, if it's your case that you were assigned to um, you went to the autopsy well so since this was my case I went to all the autopsies that took a long time so by the time I was done going to autopsies, the rest of the squad had like gone and talked to all the victims' families and like done all of this other stuff. And I knew less about the goings-on than the rest of my squad because I'd spent days in autopsy. In autopsy. Yeah. God, that that's gotta be really a so, mind wreck. Like unless you're able to turn it off, that would screw with me so bad. Um I don't, I definitely must compartmentalize. Yeah, yeah. Because I can still, like, see it all in my mind. And it's, that's my job. If I would have personally known any of those people, it would have been very different. And it's, yeah. it Exactly <clears throat> what you're saying is exactly what he said. Yeah. He was very similar in his response about the compartmentalization and everything like that. Um, but he he didn't 
have to go to autopsies, but he dealt with victims and everything of that nature as any other first responder would have. Um, what is the significance of a detective on a scene when the shooter's already deceased? Because you still need to know what happened. There still has to be an investigation. And especially for a shooting like that, people want to know, why did he do that? And that was a big frustration. We never came up with a good reason. We never found anything to point to specifically that he that there was any particular reason he did that. We found that um, his coworkers said that there had been a change in his behavior, but it's like, and it was kind of disparate. Um, but there was, it wasn't bad. He just kind of, um, instead of sitting with the group at lunch, he would, you know, sit by himself and read. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer my own company yeah. a lot. Yeah, you know? no kidding. And so, it, and his family didn't know. It was, it was very frustrating that we never came up with, you know, people wanted it to be a, like a Muslim radical, radicalization thing. And there are some things that you could look at and say, well, this might have been headed in that direction, but it was not anything definitive by any stretch. Gotcha. So that's a big case to be your very first case to work on, on your own. That's so, well, yes, except for that. But you didn't get to do the, yeah, I, I felt very kind of left out of all of it. Because you were doing the autopsy work while yeah. everyone else is doing the footwork out there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. What was, um, how long did you spend as a detective in homicide? I, everyone, I, me personally, like when I think of detectives, that's where exactly where I go. CSI, homicide <laughs> stuff. I, yeah. I never even thought about financial crimes being a detective thing, but was, did you enjoy homicide more or did you enjoy financial crimes? Um, enjoy. I guess that's a the, weird word to use. Yeah, I, they what? both had, financial crimes is definitely more sustainable. Gotcha. Um, in, in homicide, I did, I did like the work. It was interesting. And part of what I liked about it was that it seemed important and emotionally charged and there was, you know, but what I hadn't realized, I mean, I realized after I left homicide that I went to bed at night more relaxed because on any given night in homicide, you could get a call saying, Hey, um, meet the squad at this location. There's, you know, there's been a shooting, there's been a stabbing, there's been a, you know, whatever, Mm-hmm. And any night, it you know you could get that call, and so I hadn't while I was working there, I hadn't realized that I was not really relaxing. Oh, you know, you, you know, going to bed at night was kind of stressful. Yeah, because you don't know because you don't when know. that phone's gonna ring. That that yeah. that makes sense. I 
didn't even think about that. Whereas financial crimes, the stuff can probably wait till the morning when you get into the office to. Yeah, yeah. There's, we certainly never had any kind of a call out for. Get here right crime. now. We yeah. found a check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did so you, you did uh, financial crimes and homicide, and then where did you go with your policing career from there? Uh, from there, I uh, I went into the sergeant's program. It was a relatively new thing at the time where you take the test, you get on a list, um, and when you get to, I don't know, like within eight of being at the top of the list, you would go into what they called a sergeant's training program, which, um, I mean, there was some actual sergeant training, like the the nuts and bolts of being a sergeant, what you need to do. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it was um, community support, like going to uh, community meetings and being kind of that liaison interface. Yeah, because that's a very different role in policing. All of a sudden you're everyone's boss, right, out yeah. there? Yeah. Is that when you kind of decided you didn't want to do it anymore? When um, What was the moment when you were like, Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I became a sergeant and I went to patrol and there's no rule about where you go when you first become a sergeant but if there's not a squad that it's saying you know we want you mm-hmm. then you go to patrol and there's a lot of good reasons why every new sergeant should go to patrol because that's kind of the, just like being an officer, that's where you learn how everything works on the ground. and it, You need that basis of understanding before you move on to specialties. Um, so I went to patrol and it was only maybe six months where the motor lieutenant contacted me and asked me if I would come to motors to be a sergeant. And so I went back to motors to be a sergeant. And that was, I was probably more nervous about going back as a sergeant than going in the first place because I didn't own my own motorcycle. I hadn't been on a motorcycle since I'd left the squad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, now, that had been quite a while if you did yeah. so long into the detective work. Yeah, yeah, it had been quite a long time. And most of the people on motors, I didn't even know. There were a, a handful, maybe four, who were still on the squad from when I had been there. Um, but most of them, I didn't know. Because when you're in detectives, you don't get to know the people in patrol. And a lot of these most of these people had hired on and worked uh, in patrol and then gone to motors, and I didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. And the squad had almost doubled in size in the intervening years, so wow. that's why they needed another sergeant. sergeant. But anyway, yeah, so then I went and did another four years, and being a motor sergeant isn't nearly as fun as being a motor officer. There's just, you know, more paperwork. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. I totally understand that. 
is that's your last four years you spent as a sergeant on mm -hmm. motors and then you yes. retired? Yes. And was there a reason after 24 years that you didn't go anymore was, or was it you were just kind of done? Mostly just kind of done. I mean, it, it, I'd gone four years past that, you know, golden 20, mm -hmm. um, like we talked about earlier. And in motors, it was, it was unnecessarily stressful. I found out, oh, I don't know, two years, probably at least two years into that four years that... So I had I had encountered kind of a lot of resistance from the squad. Mm -hmm. And it's like they were resentful. And understand at this time, there was an, a woman on the squad. There was, and so there was a female on the squad and then they all, they all knew who I was because I was, while I was never famous, I was an oddity. Yeah. And people know the oddity, gotcha. you know, so... It's, and I didn't really understand it, what sort of the pushback was about. Um, and I found out that between the lieutenant and the captain, they had had a wager. So the captain had picked the sergeant before me. And he is one who, when the sergeant, the other sergeant who was there when he was leaving, that first sergeant assumed and thought it was his right to choose who the other sergeant would be to work with. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if when they chose him prior to me, if they'd ever talked about me, but the captain wanted him and the lieutenant wanted me. And it was kind of their, you know, let's see who chose better kind of thing. And so this this sergeant who was there when I went there, I knew who he was, but I didn't really know him. I had always, he had seemed to me and I'd heard from other people that he was kind of arrogant and standoffish. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what he seemed like in the squad. And I felt like many times he did things to like, Undermine thwart, you yeah, to undermine me, to thwart my efforts at integrating. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I didn't understand what was going on. And then a couple of years in, I heard that, you know, that each picked one. Gotcha. I was like, oh. That makes sense. <laughs> things are coming, becoming more clear to me now. And since he was the captain's choice, there were several times where I just thought, I thought, I can't believe you're getting away with this. You know, just, uh, it was very frustrating in lots of ways. And um, I had talked about retiring and I had told them that I thought I would probably retire um, in this summer coming up. Mm -hmm. And the captain uh, said, okay, well, just let me know. Um, you can retire from here. We'll, you know, whatever. When you leave, then, you know, we'll move on from there. And then a few weeks, it wasn't even real long after that, 
he uh, notified me that he had, there was a, one of his buddies who had recently promoted to sergeant. He was going to bring him directly to motors and not have him go to patrol. And so I got booted out. Oh, so it was like, can you and retire quicker then? Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, at that point I still really was planning on retiring, but I was mm-hmm. planning on retiring from motors. And so I went to graveyard patrol and really that last about six months was great. Cause I didn't have all that weird conflict in and motors conflict and everything. that had been going on. And so while when he did that, I just thought you were an ass. But I came to think of it and believe that he did me a great favor because if I would have left from motors, I would have been nothing but angry and resentful. But going to patrol, working with people who I also didn't know before, but were really great people and good at their job and comparatively were so, so easy. (laughs) Yeah. And so my last six months was great. And in fact, by the time I was ready to retire, I started to think, well, maybe I don't really want to go. But I'd already, you know, filled out all the paperwork and I just thought, well, I, it's in motion. I'll just do it. And I'm, I've been glad to be gone. But I was really glad to have gone to patrol and worked there with great people who were really good at their jobs and didn't have an agenda other than just doing their jobs. So No, that makes sense. I mean, within organizations, you're no matter where you work, I think you're going to get little clicks of people and things mm-hmm. that go on. And I'm glad that you could get back into uh, a group of people that weren't in that mindset, yeah. you know, yeah. and maybe they're already predispositioned to kind of hate you or not like you. You never know. Mm-hmm. So it's good that you were able to get back to, nope, this is, I'm I'm a good sergeant and we're going to have a good time. We're a real good group. And mm-hmm. to retire that way then, yeah. as you say, like leave with a chip on your shoulder because that wouldn't have been good for for you. Yeah. Um, your last day as a law enforcement officer, was that just full of emotion like you're here you are 24 years later and you're you're done um you know i was i was excited looking forward to what's next and and i didn't really um i mean i I thought about some things but i didn't really have a plan Mm -hmm. in place and i I really took time to just sort of unwind and just kind of reset my baseline. And because it's, I think all officers go through sort of a reckoning. You know, you were talking about your earlier, we always meet people on their worst day. It's really, really easy to to sort of think that everyone out there are people you don't want to interact with because you you know you spend your days interacting with people you don't 
who don't want to interact with you. It's on their worst day. Um, and, you know, there's some notable exceptions to that that are great. But, and I had, long before I retired, I had sort of worked through that. And so I wasn't feeling all the time like I hate everybody. But I, I spent a couple of years there, you know, early yeah. on in my career. But then, too, once I retired and got away from not only the <laughs> conflict in the streets, but conflict in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it is at other agencies, but at least Salt Lake, there was always talk about how dealing, you know, police work is fine. That's not the stressful part. It's the stuff that goes on inside the building. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> That's where the big stress occurs. Yeah. Um, but just getting away from it, and it's kind of like that reset when I left homicide of just more completely relaxing and not kind of wondering what the next thing is that I'm going to have to encounter to deal with. And you've been out of law enforcement for how long now? Since uh, 2014, so eight years. Wow. And have you gotten to a point in your life where you're, <clears throat> I, I mean, you never go back to who you were before a police officer, but to yeah. where you don't have that cop mentality going on? Um, mostly, not entirely. Um, I no longer have to sit with my back to a wall. In restaurants, yeah. you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Um, but so it's it's better. And yeah. a- after law enforcement, you've done, you've obviously met me through school bus driving. So yeah. you've learned to drive a school bus. You did real estate, right? For uh-huh. Yep. And I, I still do that. I, I don't work at it like a job. I work at it for friends and family and anyone who, you know, if I know someone who refers someone, they don't mm-hmm. have to be my friend or family. But, yeah. you know, that's what I do. And then did you do anything else? Um, mostly I have babysat my grandkids. That's awesome. And that's been a lot of fun. That's really cool. It's been great. Um, uh, I have a daughter who's has two kids who are now both in elementary school. And it was really great being able to watch them. And I didn't watch them every day but a day or two a week um, and to just really know them as they, you know, grow up. Yeah. Not a lot of people get that, uh, yeah. that opportunity in life. Yeah. So that's, that's amazing. And now you're going to work at the post office, which <laughs> is <am>. cool. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <clears throat> yeah. So. yeah th- that's, I think <coughs> that's really exciting to see that you were able to put all this time into a career and then now you're just doing other adventures with your life. Yeah. It's really nice to have the freedom to do something or not. And it, I never thought working at the post office is ever something I would want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's kind of twofold. I became a bus driver in large part because I knew how short-staffed they were. And, you know, women in my neighborhood talked about how if the bus showed up, it was always late. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I should do it now. And I enjoy it. And part of the appeal is that I don't have to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's kind of the same boat I'm in 
with uh, the post office, which it's um, something different. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And if you don't, it's also nice. Like you said, you have a retirement coming to you. You have a pension. So I have a husband who works. And a husband. (laughs) (laughs) So you can say, you know what? I actually don't really like this gig. I'm out of here. Yeah. (laughs) That's so cool. I got one last question for you. If you could do it all over again, would you go back into policing at the age of 23, 24 when you went in? Uh, Yes. You'd do it all over again? I would do it again. And just, I would probably go earlier, which (laughs) is a very selfish kind of thing. Because just in general, Mm -hmm. I really think that you, they shouldn't hire police officers before, I mean, I think ideally 25, but maybe, you know, 23, 24. Right now it's 21. Oh, have you seen what it is for the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office now? gone down to 18? Yeah. In, I don't think for patrol, but in the prison side, the correction side, side. to me that's terrifying, 18-year-olds in that, like. Yeah, Yeah. Salt Lake City, many years ago, for a short period of time, like less than a year, I hired people at 18 and there was someone on motors when I was there who was one of those hires and, and he acknowledges like, yeah, that's crazy to have an 18 year old be a police officer. Yeah. I mean, your, your brain's still developing and, and that's kind of where I landed the 25 year mark and not only for brain development and decision-making, but just life experience. Oh yeah. But you know, if it's 21, you get to retire earlier. You get to retire earlier, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that. And I also would have, I would have promoted earlier. And I, I didn't look to promote earlier than I did because I was enjoying the work that I was doing. And when I was looking seriously at when I would retire, that's when I thought, well, if I'm going to promote, I got to do it now in order, because you have to be in that position for three years in order to get the maximum benefit in your retirement Mm -hmm. package. So that's why I took the test when I did for Sergeant. And then you have to wait, I think it's three years before you can test for Lieutenant. And then there's this process that, you know, you may get on the list right away. You may not, you may be, 20th on the list. I mean, you don't know. So it can be a significant period of time. Then once you actually promote, then that three years again. Yeah. Because I looked at um, at testing for lieutenant and just given my state of being, you know, very close to being done, I didn't because I didn't want to go through the headache of that whole testing process to have it not amount to, you know, either having decide to stay an extra five years oh, or yeah. so or have it amount to nothing. So I just, I didn't promote and I just retired. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's cool that you would have done it all over again. I've heard some because I've talked to multiple. I've, over my years of training bus drivers, I've interacted with a lot of different police officers, never a female officer, it's always been males, and a lot of the males say, I would never do that shit again. <laughs> well, and honestly, when kids would talk to me about becoming a police officer, I would tell them if some sort of physical um, 
public service is what you're looking for, be a firefighter. People are glad to have firefighters show up. They like firefighters. Um, so it's, you know, you get a lot of the same, you know, adrenaline yeah, rush. And the accolades. And, and people like you. <laughs> so there's that. Um, the thing that I liked a lot about law enforcement, you can stay in your same job, but have a lot of different positions, which means you don't do the same thing for your whole career. Cause it's very different, very different moving from, you know, patrol to detectives. And I, I was never in, um, like vice or narcotics and all of those things are different there. You know, there's a lot of similarities just in, uh, the police work of it, but how it is applied is different. And so it, you know, can stave off the drudgery of, day in and day out, because even though on any given day you might come across something novel, you know, 99% of it is the same things day after day. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's nice to be able to change it up without having to, you know, apply for a new job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I definitely see your point there. Would you do policing in today's world because you did policing in a very different world. Yes. Probably not. Um, it's probably... It's, it's a really loaded question. I very, get it. It's a very loaded question. <laughs> but I, I just am so interested because it's so different. It's very different now and in so many ways. And like right now, there hasn't been the like the protests against police in so I retired in 2014 and I want to say it was by 2016 2017 there was you know starting to be protests around the country uh, against police and whether if if there are issues anywhere that are um, that people are protesting and televised, they end up impacting every place, whether you are having those same kind of issues or not. Mm -hmm. um, because people tend to think that there are, even if there aren't. I'm not saying in Salt Lake City there are, there are no issues that need to be addressed, but it's not, not here like other places, but from a lot of the protests you would have thought it is, you know. And so that isn't going on now. So like right now today, it doesn't seem as uh, tumultuous as it did five years ago. But it is very different. And so I would, I would hesitate to, get, to go into it now. And it's, it's scary because we need good people in law enforcement. Yeah. And if people are looking at the job and saying, hmm, that's, you know, the the cost benefit is not there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And definitely the way uh, I think that there has been a lot of good things that have happened in law enforcement and things that needed to change. But I think there's also been something that shined on law enforcement in an unfair way as well. Yes. Kind of by judging 
uh, group of bad apples and throwing that and tarnishing the whole thing. And that public perception makes it very hard for someone like on the outside to say, you know, what, I want to jump into that and be judged every day and shit <laughs> on, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like there's not a lot of, uh, the pay's not great. The public doesn't look at police officers like they did in the past. I mean, they've always had the no one likes them around, but I think nowadays people really don't like cops. Maybe it's calmed down a little bit, but during the COVID years and right before, like you said, yes. it was getting pretty bad. And I remember when uh, I was married, I wanted to go in fire really bad and my uh, wife wanted to go into law enforcement really bad. And I went through the fire academy and everything. She went through the police academy. It was self-sponsored academies. But we were, I was testing with hundreds of applicants mm -hmm. and she was testing with hundreds of applicants. That's not the case anymore. No. You're not testing with hundreds of applicants. You're testing with minimal applicants. And then are they actually people that want to be there? Like, are you attracting the good people like you say? So I find that so interesting and, and rightfully so. You say you don't know if you'd want to be in it now. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much for sharing your insight, You're your welcome. story, and sitting down and talking with me and the audience about everything you've gone through. I wish you the best of luck up there at the post office and your <laughs> journeys. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think that'll wrap it up for tonight. We will catch you guys all on the next one. Thank you, Roslyn. Mm -hmm.